Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is Oz Craggs, who's a producer, mix engineer, and studio owner out of Hidden Track Studios in Folkestone, England. He's been working in the industry for nearly two decades and has worked with a plethora of bands and labels, including Neck Deep, Mallory Knox, Gallows, and a ton more. This is a really good conversation. I introduce you Oz Craggs. Welcome to the URM podcast. Hey, Al. Thanks for having me. It's been a real honor to be invited on. Thanks for being here. I want to just get right into something that you mentioned on the pre-interview that I thought was interesting. You said that you don't think that you have innate talent like a lot of the people out there, but I think there's something to be said about the innate drive to work really, really hard. I don't think that everybody just has that. The drive to succeed and the drive to actually do what's necessary is kind of as rare as what people would call talent. And so what I'm curious is, what was your average day like when you were first starting out trying to turn this into something compared to a current day for you? Okay, that's a good question. I started kind of recording in a studio in my hometown where I grew up. It was on the back of a music shop. So every so often there would be like a recording session that would just usually be a vocal over a backing track, kind of someone singing along to a you know a cover or something like that. So those days were mainly spent selling guitars and making coffee. But when I went self-employed and I first, uh, you know, first started kind of going out on my own and had like a small home studio in my parents' garage, um, my my average day when I first started there would be I actually uh, had a kind of side hustle of cleaning a leisure centre, <laughs> which is like a swimming pool and a gym near me, because obviously, you know, in the first year of trading, you know, you don't have enough bands to kind of really make a lot of money. So I used to have like a few side hustles and one of them would be going to do that. So I'd actually get up pretty early and uh, go out to this place and clean toilets and um, showers before I'd come back and start a session if I had a session but then 
Um, sometimes it'll be just doing vinyl transfers uh, to digital. People were, it was like in the CD era that I was uh, started. So I was kind of transferring vinyls to CDs or mini discs. So yeah, and then occasionally, you know, you know, every so often or progressively more and more, I was getting like local bands in as well. That's quite a difference in the side hustle from the main gig. Yeah. However, those are some applicable skills. Cleaning toilets actually <laughs> translates into studio life, especially if you intern for somebody. It's funny, you know, because at the at the start of this uh, kind of COVID era, my uh, the, the cleaner that I had for my studio stopped coming in because obviously for, for obvious reasons, but also he had some other things going on. So I've actually had to uh, double down on my cleaning skills once again for the first time in a while. So uh, I'm back to cleaning my own studio. It feels like the good old times. Yeah, full circle. Yeah. So how many hours would your day typically be? It's so hard to remember because obviously it's such a long time back now, but I just remember spending a lot of time. If I wasn't with a band or doing, you know, making money elsewhere, it was a lot of time spent on MySpace kind of like drumming up business or kind of going to local gigs so I, I, I kind of it was a lot of hustling back then a lot of you know trying to find kind of people to work with and that kind of thing so yeah I've always I've always definitely put the hours in definitely not scared of uh, of long days how does it compare to now I think I probably put more hours in now <laughs> to be honest I think I've got a bit of a kind of um, I think you build up a weird tolerance to working long days. And I think obviously the clients I work with now are obviously kind of a bit more advanced or a bit more successful than maybe the ones I did when I first started. So deadlines become a real thing. And, you know, when you have lots of people needing, you know, revisions or stems or mixes done on time, you know, you have to... uh, be prepared to put in a lot of hours just to kind of make sure you're keeping everyone happy, really. You know, this is why when interns are sometimes tested by potential employers or anyone is tested, there will be some tough situations thrown at them, like real quick deadlines, situations that involve very little sleep, things that will generally stretch them to their limits. And The idea is to see, are they going to crack? Can they handle this? Because if they can't handle this, there's absolutely no way that they're cut out for doing this for real. Because contrary to what a lot of people may think, the more successful you get, the busier you get and the higher the pressure is. It's not like you become successful and can work less. I mean, there comes a point where... You can have more balance once you have enough momentum going, but the amount of work only goes up. The amount of pressure only goes up. And so if uh, someone can't hang with that kind of stuff at the very, very beginning, it's a really, really good indicator that uh, not going to work. Yeah, agreed. And um, it's funny, you know, because there's so many facets of recording, producing, mixing that I think get overlooked when people kind of, start off or kind of are interested in getting a career in this they think either they're kind of attracted to the technical or the engineering side of things and the the toys and the plugins and software or they're attracted to you know just the idea of working with music but there's just so many other sides of it you know the people skills people management and time management and uh yeah being prepared to just put in an awful lot of hours and dealing with a lot of pressure and and problem solving, I think, as well. It's, I think the majority of, you know, this job as a producer certainly is problem solving. 
I actually think that, um, I, I've said this before, I think that in order to be a great mixer or a great producer, you have to be a great problem solver. And I've had some people react badly to that, saying that to say that takes away the art side of things, but I don't, I don't think it does. You can't create a complex piece of art without solving problems. Exactly. And certainly in, in my experience, I mean, especially now with most of the songs I work on, the minimum, again, short of a kind of maybe a kind of a one-off of like an acoustic song on a record or something like that, the, the average song has 80 plus, 80 to 200 tracks. And there is no way you can mix 80 to 200 tracks of audio without problem solving. I just, I don't know anyone that can filter down or, you know, kind of funnel down that much sound into a listenable mix without making compromises, figuring out uh, things. So I think even just at the basic level of mixing, I think problem solving is huge. But then when you're producing as well, things like, you know, even just stuff like, you know, this week for me, I'm, I'm dealing with talking to a band that I'm doing a record with coming up and there's kind of scheduling issues with certain members having to do certain things. So, you know, you're problem solving on multiple projects at multiple times, uh, you know, at the same time and uh, multiple issues at the same time. So, it's it, yeah, I think I think being a good problem solver is I, I would absolutely agree with you. I think it's a huge part of of doing this. Yeah. Um, well, that's why this is actually so hard to do, in my opinion is because you have to marry an artistic vision with a pretty sophisticated technical know-how. And oftentimes those types of things don't go together, in my opinion. Yeah. Like oftentimes it's, it's one or the other. I mean, you know, a guitar can have a very technical approach if you want, but at the end of the day, you're still playing stuff that feels cool. That's kind of what it all boils down to at the very, very end of everything with you know, playing an instrument or painting, you're making something that looks cool. You're kind of creating something out of thin air, but you're not fucking with a bunch of parameters and technology in the same way, in my opinion, because it just comes down to a physical act. When it comes to something like mixing and production, yeah, you are creating something out of thin air, but you have to manipulate very complex equipment and tons of moving pieces so many moving pieces along the way to get it to not sound, first of all, like a total piece of garbage. And then beyond that, actually sound like something that people might enjoy. That's craziness. Yeah. And I think it's funny as I kind of continue to improve and learn more and hopefully, you know, get better at my craft, the understanding of the minutiae of, you know, you kind of learn, you can see the problems coming much further off in the distance. So, you know, when you see, you know, kind of even arrangement wise oh there's synths here but there's also guitars and there's rhythm guitars and then there's clean underlay guitars and there's lead guitars there's screaming and then there's singing and it's all happening at once you can kind of just hear instantly that that's going to be problematic to some degree because there's not going to be one you know just clear distinctive front voice so i think the better you get at doing this you start to see the problems further away but similarly as a producer it's then you have to kind of try and convey that and feed that information back to the band without sounding like you're being dismissive of their art as well so it can be a it can be a challenging kind of thing to kind of parlay this knowledge that you've learned and the kind of wider understanding of how the nuts and bolts of a mix could go together, but not sound like you're dismissing someone's you know, raw art. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, the problem, in my opinion, is that someone who doesn't understand mixing 
they might not understand why something is difficult or may not work because they're just hearing, you know, they've got a sonic vision in their head, but that sonic vision in somebody's head isn't limited by a physical medium, like a speaker that has to recreate it and somehow fit everything in and work in a certain phase uh, with another speaker. Like there are physical constraints to actually being able to reproduce these sounds, but in your head, you know, when you're imagining something, (laughs) there's no physical constraints. Yeah. And I think that it's really, really hard for someone who doesn't actually understand how to mix. It's hard for them to to get that, I think, because they'll hear some mix by somebody else where they think they're hearing certain things and they'll have a sonic vision. And then they will assume that you can just do that with theirs. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and this is the thing. I mean, I think it's a funny one because um, I was talking to someone recently about kind of, I think, you know, a friend or, you know, someone that isn't in the industry just was asking me, oh, you know, as you've done this longer and got better or, you know, supposedly got better, do you mix quicker? And I've said, no, no, I mix slower. (laughs) I'm getting slower and slower, which is strange. But the problem is, is that as my ears develop and as I understand the mechanics of a mix so much better, you hear so many more things wrong with it I guess because your ears are becoming educated and kind of trained to kind of spot these clashes so much better but as I said it's just it's hard sometimes again I think it's a real kind of a skill that I constantly trying to keep working on is that understanding that while it's so obvious to me or you or plenty of other people listening to this that when you hear a clashing part or you know there's two guitar parts sitting in the same range or register and and then there's a vocal there as well and then the people are wondering why you can only hear the vocal or the lead guitar isn't cutting through as much. It's kind of obvious to us because we've done it so many times, but it's hard to remember that, you know, like you said, these bands, that it's the vision in their head. They don't have that experience or technical skill to even understand why. So the job or the skill then becomes how you communicate that issue and without sounding, you know, dismissive or rude or like a bit of a douche, you know, when you're when you're when you're telling them that it isn't going to work, you know, bit of a douche or a total douche. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably I've probably been called worse, you know. Oh yeah, I, well, I've definitely been called worse. And also, uh, funny, you say that uh, when I think back to how I've handled certain things in the past, I cringe from how much of an asshole. I've been and uh, versus how I would handle certain things now. And so I, I definitely think that the ability to deal with other people um, and to have to A, disappoint them, or B, get them to rethink their vision, or C, get them to compromise part of their vision. There's a way to do it where people can be reasonably or very happy. Um, maybe not always, but, uh, but I think in most cases there's, there's an art to it and a skill to it. And it's something that you can develop over time. And it's actually one of the harder parts of this whole job, maybe the hardest part. I agree. And, and, and I think it's uh, it's dynamic as well because, you know, um, no man is an island and all of that as well. You know, we're human beings too and we might have had 
too little sleep or not enough caffeine one day or, you know, something else going on in our life and our communication skills might not be on their top form. And then that's going to just, you know, affect that conversation or how that conversation will go down. So it is, like you said, it's such a critical part of the job that is so easily overlooked. But the more longer I've done this for and the more bands I've worked with, you also learn how to kind of um, read the room and, and pick up on what the vibe is with different people and how you can communicate with one person in the room is different to how you can communicate with someone else. And you get a lot quicker at like reading that situation and knowing when to make a joke or when to not say anything at all or when to let the band kind of hash this idea out between themselves before your job as a producer at that point is to stay quiet <laughs> you know I think it's uh, it, that is just like you said it's a skill that you have to learn from just doing a lot of hours of doing it and upsetting people and apologizing and working out why you upset them and try to learn from it I guess yeah how did you learn it, it did I mean did you learn it the way you just said just by doing it a lot uh, or did you put some thought into it? The reason I'm asking is because, um, for instance, I know that Chris Crummett studied psychology in college and suggests that for people who go into this line of work, you know, that he suggests that you just go ahead and read books on psychology uh, so that you know a little bit more about it. So you have at least a few reference points and ideas on how to deal with extreme personalities and conflict resolution that's great advice yeah i mean for my uh, self-deprecating in the the pre-interview about not having innate talent which i stand by I, I i do mean that you know but i do have some kind of skills and i think i've always been fairly good as a kind of a fairly kind of extroverted person i like meeting people i like talking to people and enjoy enjoy uh, conversing in general so i think kind of communication has never been a struggle for me but like anything you, you you develop skills and and you do things and i tend to find as well that the it seems kind of obvious to you know but i'm sure you it'll ring true for you and you'll understand what i mean is that i think if people understand that you're coming from coming at, at it from a place that you care about their song and you really give a shit about how it sounds and that is why you're kind of essentially causing this upset because ultimately you feel it's worth that upset to make the product better or to make their song better. That is a good starting point, I think, for people to realise that you're not just being um, a kind of contrarian in the situation. Um, so that's kind of a big thing for me. I try not to use any negative language. It's, you know, rather than saying something's not good, it, it, you would say it's something can be better, you know. And I think, obviously, that's a very basic example, but I think that's a good kind of blueprint of just generally how I how I approach it is just to explain to people, look, if I didn't care, I wouldn't say anything. I would just sit here, press record and take my money. But I do care. <laughs> so that's why we're having this conversation. Man, that idea of telling people that something just totally sucked, I think that some people will say that they're okay with it. In my experience, not that many people are actually okay with that. And even if they say that they're okay with it in the moment, there will be some resentment that builds over time and a gradual chipping away of your bond, your working bond, if you use that kind of language and take that kind of approach with people. You could end up making a great record or many great records and just never have your clients come back to you. Like I know of a few producers who are pretty heavy hitters who are notorious douchebag tyrant pieces of shit in the way that they deal with people. And their career is a series of first records with a band. 
And those records sometimes do really well, which is why they get other clients, but the bands never go back to them. Um, and it has everything to do with how they're treated. And what I think is interesting about that is that no amount of success on a record will get a band to go back to a producer that they had a bad experience with personally. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I can really see that as well. And I think there's a there's a few interesting things you said about like, you know, just telling someone that it sucked. The only time I'd ever say anything as kind of blunt and aggressive as that is if I had such a good bond with the band that they knew that I was making a joke because I would never say that seriously to a band. That's just not the language mm-hmm. I use in the studio. But just a kind of nuanced point on that, really, that I have a theory about, and it might be, you know, be interesting to see if you uh, if you agree or, you know, what your reaction is to it. But I will tailor the kind of language I use and also the pace I'm working at, you know, how enthusiastic or how animated I am to the instrument <laughs> as well. Because I think different performers and different musicians playing different instruments require a different type of kind of interaction. So with vocals and drums, it's a very similar kind of process for me, which is I'm doing as few takes as I possibly can. And it is high energy, high octane. I don't use any, there there will never be, you know, not good or bad or sucked, or there will be no negative language. And usually if if I do have other band members here specifically for vocals, they will be told in no uncertain terms that they will not speak to the, the singer while we're working on a track. And if the singer asks for their input, they all they will say is, it sounds fucking great. That's all the band are allowed to say to a singer when I'm working with them. Because, <laughs> you know, then, you know, I'll say to them, look, various points through the song, my hands are not going to be on the talkback mic. I will turn around and say to you, is there anything in here you want me just to go over? And that's the process. So the band will be like, if the singer quite often will go, oh, what do the boys think in the back? You know, what do the guys think? They put the talkback on for them. They go, yeah, it's fucking great, man. You're killing it. And then they say to me, he's got the wrong lyrics in that, in that second line on the verse. Okay, cool. And I'll just say to them, rather than saying, you've got the wrong lyrics, I'm like, it's perfect. It's sounding great. I wouldn't mind just one more hit at that first uh, verse. Oh, can you just read me the lyrics quickly? And then they'll go, oh, I think I might have sung the wrong lyrics. Oh, okay, cool. We'll just have one more go. You know, there's so many ways of kind of communicating, but I think vocals is so critical and drums as well, because you can, it's such a physical, it's a performance. You can't fake drums or vocals. It is literally a performance, just like it is on stage. There's no difference. With guitar, when you're on stage, it's, you know, you're in the power stance and you, you know, you're head banging and it's loud. On the studio, you're usually sat on a comfy chair with a drink next to you, you know, punching in parts. It's so different, I think, that, you know, with vocals and drums, I really kind of make sure that the communication and the energy is right for the person, you know. I think it's really, really critical. What's interesting here to me is what's always been difficult about this, and I agree with you completely because that's the approach that I just try to take in life as well, um, which is tailoring your communication style, not purpose, but style to the situation. Different people are going to react to different types of communication differently. And you have to keep in mind what the outcome is and what state of mind they need to be in to perform their best. Now, this has been tough for me because I've always been hyper aware of these kinds of communication techniques. And so when someone is using them on me, it's super, super obvious. Like if just say I was the vocalist and someone said, could you read me back the lyric? I'd be thinking, he's saying I fucked up the lyrics. (laughs) It would just be real clear to me. Sure. 
But I have come to realize over the years, and this might sound super obvious, but it's really important, that not everybody is wired the same. And just because I would take something a certain way or feel a certain way about a communication style doesn't mean that everybody else would. And in fact, most people on earth don't think the way I think. So to assume that they think the way I think is erroneous. Um, and I shouldn't communicate with them from the standpoint of thinking that they're just going to understand things the way I do or interpret things the way I do. They're going to interpret things their way and understand things their way. And it's on me to meet them where they're at, not try to pull them over to where I am and just be like, what's the problem? The fucking lyrics are wrong. Just tell them the lyrics are wrong. Just get them right. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. Yeah. That no, no good. You can't, can't do that. No, I mean, and, and that's it. And, and I think not only communication, it also shows that maybe you've probably got a very, very good uh, sense of self and probably, uh, you know, if, if you were the vocalist in that situation, you were like, listen, I'd just rather you just say to me, you fucked up the lyrics. Someone would have to be so kind of confident in themselves and comfortable in themselves to do that. And I'm sure you've worked with enough singers as, as well as I do that singers don't generally tend to fit that bill. Nope. Especially in the studio, you know, it's they're, they're generally the most uh, fragile people. And, not, and uh, that sounds like I'm being derogatory, but I mean, you know, their skill is that they can emote so by virtue of that they are emotional people so you have to be more forgiving i think in general but I, I completely take your point that you know i might be treading too lightly around certain people and they're just like it's all right oz just pull you know rip the band-aid off let's go you know <laughs> so uh it does happen but i generally would rather kind of go the softly softly approach you know i think that's way better i think that people with blunt communication styles will let that be known up front like you'll be able to tell. Yeah. They'll make it pretty clear because I, I know I do to people. It's important also to just understand what that musician is going through, right? So with a vocalist, you're right. Their thing is they need to be able to emote. If you break that down for them, they're not going to be able to get there, kind of like an actor or something. And also the fact that their physical body is the instrument and the mind-body link is just so strong. You can't be taking shots at the way that they're feeling. You have to keep it all in that flow that keeps them in as close to a peak state as possible. That's exactly, you know, what I think too. And and, and what is really interesting is talking to other other producers, you know, as you kind of go through this career, you kind of make friends and you meet people and, you know, and it's so interesting that people have you know a lot of people have very different takes on this and approaches to dealing with this this kind of part of the job of like you know getting the best out of people and not kind of destroying someone's confidence while simultaneously telling them they need to change something so it's really interesting that just these so many different approaches and there are definitely people out there that would would strongly disagree with me and kind of get the best by essentially breaking the person down you know um but for me personally, I've just found time and time again that um, in my experience, being someone's biggest fan, primarily, while with tracking vocals, I am that singer's biggest fan and I'll be enthusiastic and my phone won't be in my hand. It will be, you know, I'll be all in on, on their vocal and just telling them every bit that they did well, they'll know about it. And I'll never say, oh, you fucked that line up. I'll say, you smashed that line there. That is so good. Oh my God, that's the best you've sung that line. Killer, keep going. You know, I, I definitely come as like a cheerleader, especially with vocals. But, you know, again, 
Now, that might not work for some people. It, it might be that, you know, I've worked with bands and taken that approach and they've just like, they find it irritating or they find it disingenuous. And, you know, they ultimately settle up with someone that's maybe a bit more um, casual or, you know, kind of a bit more of the kind of traditional British kind of understated stiff upper lip approach, which is usually just someone going, yeah, that's all right. You know, <laughs> that's all you'll get. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the usual British way, you know. So um, I'm definitely aware it's not for everyone, but just in my... And it, and it makes me feel good because if I'm if I'm like amping myself up and I'm amping them up, it's like everyone's having more fun. And I think when everyone's having fun, generally the results are better as well. I think so too. And it's a very tough thing to quantify because yeah, there's no metric, there's no fun no. quotient. You know, you can't dial in the number of fun points, but it works. <laughs> it works. Well, you know what though? There are some classic records, like you know those corn records where you see the home videos and doesn't look like they're having fun looks like they're going through a very painful experience and those are great too but so i would say that it's more than just fun when people are in the zone they do a much better job whatever zone that is and the thing is that having a good time a fun time gets you closer to it in lots of ways so i think that i definitely think that there's something to that. And for most cases, you don't need someone to relive a trauma yeah. in order to uh, do something really, really great. Like, you know, when you're tracking a drummer or a guitar player or a bassist or whatever, most vocals and most songs, you don't need them to go back to some place where they're reliving some horrific event. But even if that's what you have to do, still, the point is everyone's got to be in that zone. Yeah, I, I, definitely. I think, I suppose with the fun thing, I was I was being selfishly more talking about myself because if I'm enjoying the process more, I guess, and feeling like I'm invested and I'm amped up on, on, on it, then I come into the studio every day, like super pumped about what we're doing. Like I just tend to find that if I was a bit more nonchalant, that would affect me and the, my kind of belief or my enthusiasm to the project. But no, I, I completely agree. And, um, and it's funny, you know, because there's definitely, you know, say I'm working working with a band and there's you know a song that's clearly you know a sad song where the you know the the singer's singing about something traumatic or kind of heartbreaking for them I will kind of make sure that you know again it's it's your the producer's job to make sure that you're kind of you're setting up a, an energy or a, an environment that that emotion can be conveyed and can present itself but I think the kind of the link between kind of amping someone up or being like fuck yeah it's amazing versus kind of giving someone a space where they can be vulnerable is by being completely um, focused in on it and dialed into it and enthusiastic, but not necessarily in a loud way, but just kind of being very present with the vocalists. And I think that is something that, you know, you can kind of parlay into different things. Yeah, ab absolutely. How do you get yourself there when it's a topic you can't relate to? I would say most projects I do, I'll have a conversation with the singer about what the song's about, especially if I've caught kind of like, you know, the odd lyric, because I'd say, you know, the majority of what I do is, uh, you know, half singing or mostly singing. I very, you know, I'd say probably a, a smaller proportion of the stuff I work on is all screaming where, you know, I think with screaming, the lyrics sometimes are super important, but generally it's more the emotion behind the lyric in the scream that's like the important aspect. But I think with singing, there's so much of it that the lyric really kind of is important. So quite often I'll have a conversation with a singer before we start the song and just 
say, oh, you know, what's it about? Or if I've worked with a band before, that usually they're quite excited to have that conversation with me. So they'll they'll preempt it and say, oh, Oz, check this out. This is what this song's about, you know. So they'll kind of be quite excited to kind of talk it through with me. So just by having a conversation as we're starting the song puts them into a headspace. And then again, if it was like a... Um, I'm wanting to kind of give examples, but I'm also aware that I uh, I don't want to kind of out anyone because there, there's been some awesome experiences, but I'll kind of tread lightly around this. But there was an example where I worked with a band where it was the first time I'd worked with a band and kind of, you know, as I'm kind of making small talk with them as we're doing whatever, you know, asking, oh, you know, do you guys have girlfriends, are you in relationships, what's the deal? You know, having those kind of conversations and uh, the singer kind of threw away quite quickly. Oh, I was actually married but uh, I'm not anymore. And it, but it was really in a kind of nonchalant way. So roll on four days later, we start tracking the vocals. Was it like, oh, I better pay attention to this? Yeah, exactly. It, it's something that kind of pricked my ear a little bit, but you don't push on it. But four days later, we start tracking vocals on a song and the lyrics are so obviously about this and the room goes silent and everyone's realising that this is a moment. And the singer is singing this take with literally tears rolling down his face it's like you could hear his voice cracking throughout the song and he made it to like the second chorus and then just broke down and that was the take we used on the actual thing up to those two verses they're the actual performance that's used in the final mix because there was something so powerful about it had i not maybe had that conversation just pure small talk throwaway conversation just to kind of build a bit of rapport between me and the band who i've never met before i would not have picked up on that <laughs> so i think it's just being aware of that I'd say not just the fact that you had the conversation, but you had the conversation and also were able to key in on that detail. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's it. You know, as, as I said, you know, it's it's those little details of just those little kind of tricks of kind of being present or, you know, um, paying attention to people. I really do think that that's kind of what's helped me kind of keep me doing this job and keep, you know, bands coming back or people wanting to work with me. I, I think that's probably a bigger facet than the guitar tone I get a band or <laughs> the kick drum sound, you know. Well, the things that people tell you have so much meaning to them that they don't necessarily understand that they're conveying. And if you are really paying attention to everything, the tone of their voice, the tempo at which they're speaking, what the context is, what the other things that they were saying around it were, the vibe of how they said it, their facial expression, all those things. If you're actually paying attention, you can you can figure out everything or just about everything you need to know from just a few sentences, but you have to be actually listening and you have to actually give a shit about what the person is saying. Actually care. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, again, it's probably the ability to listen is I've found something that maybe I've has got better with age. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I've found that like I want to listen more now, whereas maybe in my 20s when I was a bit younger, I was a bit more bullish and, you know, you just kind of you'd ask questions more for a formality or for a politeness thing. But, you know, now I think you get a bit older and you get a bit kind of more life experience. And I think you do care about the answer and you kind of, you're more interested in other people's stories, I guess. You said that uh, you feel like it gets better with age and I agree with you. However, if I'm thinking about my own life, that's something that I think I've always been pretty good at, which is uh, understanding what other people are saying and 
understanding what's beneath the surface, I've been able to use those cues to make decisions throughout my entire life. And it's served me very, very well. But it's something that I didn't have to use to think about. I still kind of don't if I don't want to. I just understand things. Like when people are saying something and they're being disingenuous or they're saying something and it means something else that they may not know they mean, or they're unhappy, but they don't know they're unhappy. All those types of things that are super important, that's always just come to me. Like it's always just like I could just read it like a book. Now, the thing that's changed over the years is that rather than just taking those impressions and then running with my interpretation of them, which is what I would do in the past is, you know, just log the info and keep going. Now I actively try to engage people so that, because first of all, I wasn't always right. Um, I was right a lot of the time, but not always. Your intuition's not always going to be dead on. So A, I want to eliminate misreading of other people. And B, it's much more effective when you actually engage somebody on these things. Uh, You can learn a lot more about where they're coming from. And it's a lot easier to get to a joint solution on things. I guess what I used to do is take that info and just do my thing. You know, just take how I figured they were feeling or what direction I figured they were going in and then just acted on it. Now I try to involve people in things and uh, try to make it a collaborative type of situation. So I, I put a lot more work into it now. So it's gotten better with age, but I also work on it a lot more. Yeah. And it's kind of, it becomes more of like an active process as opposed to a kind of uh, innate kind of thing. Yeah, That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think like you said, but potentially you might be an outlier or someone that's gifted with like, you know, a very intuitive communication skill. One thing I've noticed I think maybe I've just become more aware of as I've got older and then maybe because I became aware of it in other people, I've then thought, oh, I don't want to do that because <laughs> I don't like that when people I notice. It's a trait that I see in other people that I don't enjoy, which is that a conversation becomes just someone's chance to say their part as opposed to, you know, actually listening. So, you know, I'm sure everyone can be guilty of that. God knows I definitely will have been or, you know, will continue to be on some level. But it's just something that I've become. So when I say I've got better with age, I think it's become maybe I've become more aware of these things and had more life experience myself. So when someone talks about a situation or losing, you know, death or, you know, relationships, I can relate maybe on a kind of one-to-one, you know, level because now I, as an, you know, someone who's had a few more years of experience to when I was in my twenties, I've kind of had that experience and can can relate and therefore maybe put myself or I can empathize easier, I guess. Absolutely. And also when it's certain things like I could tell someone's not happy with the situation, like say that you're tracking a band and you just know something's off they're not happy about something in the past. Like I'm talking about like my early twenties, I would have sensed it and I would have been right, but I would have then just acted on it either badly or well that, you know, that depends, but (laughs) I would have just acted on it or I would have just assumed it's done for like they've decided they want to leave or, you know, just, just come to conclusions that you shouldn't come to what I should have done is Taking that intuition, okay, they're not happy. Let's engage them and figure out why 
and then try to fix that. You know, the same thing applies in relationships with a significant other. I think that you can feel that, you know, someone's unhappy with something that happens in every relationship at some point. Now, are you going to take that cue and flip the fuck out (laughs) and uh, torpedo things? Or are you going to talk it out and keep things going? It's an important thing to not just take these cues, but then know what to do with them afterwards. That's been the thing. Yeah. And I think like further on than that as well, the, the next part of that kind of that chain of thinking in my head is that it's taking action in into kind of what how you respond to that uh, intuition that some, you know, that say that the room isn't happy. But then the next thing is how? How do you respond, you know, do, because I don't know about you, but like, you know, in a studio, there's sometimes things get tense and it's not often obvious why things are getting tense. But sometimes there's an environment where, you know, it could be that the the major songwriter is a guitarist and the second guitarist is doing his parts and the, the songwriter is sitting there going, I'm not happy with how he's playing it. You know, so there's these all these like kind of like micro tensions in the room. And sometimes by again, and, and I'm not I'm not advocating this as a rule of thumb, but just in certain situations, you can break that just by literally being an idiot or, or telling a joke or talking about a meme, you know, like you can break attention mm-hmm. quite easily or you can address it like, you know, head on and say, I'm sensing that people aren't happy. What's going on? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's that, like you said, so beyond that kind of like knowing that you are going to respond or kind of call it out is how you do it. Because I think there's so many ways to skin that cat as well, you know? Well, yeah, you could just attack somebody on it or you could address them bluntly or you could change their state or you can figure out more clearly who the problem is coming from and deal with them only. You know, there's so many different ways to go about it. Like, And I think that actually how you do it is just as important as the fact that you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few of these like kind of microaggressions or micro tensions in a session that I will, my starting point is to deal with it with a bit of humor and then build from there. Because if nothing else, it changes my state, you know, because if if something's kind of I'm sensing tension or, you know, someone maybe like distrust or some some kind of objection to, to me or what I'm doing or something that someone's displeased, it's easy for my ego to take that as an attack and then for me to get defensive back. And then we're in a kind of battle of mm-hmm. defensiveness. So if I make a silly, you know, like kind of, play it off and, and and be silly not only does that sometimes break the tension but it also puts me it changes my state into something that's kind of like I've not kind of like um tit for tatting them with with aggression or kind of you know defensive energy I guess yeah getting our own ego out of the way is so crucial that's again you asked about the getting better with age or you mentioned the getting better with age that's also a big part of what has gotten better with age is I feel like, for at least for me, tell me if it's the same for you, the ego voice was a lot louder. It's not that it's not there now. I just have figured out how to defer its gratification. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, rather yeah, like than that. going for the kill immediately, uh, like that tit-for-tat defensive thing, like I'm going to satisfy my ego now by winning this battle, boom, drop an atom bomb on this person's psyche yeah. and destroy yeah. Like, yeah, no, 
never. I don't do that shit anymore. Now I feel like the bigger ego gratification is by solving the problem and continuing a good thing, keep a good thing going and fixing whatever that is. But I think that initial super strong ego voice, uh, the fight voice or whatever it is, that was a lot stronger when I was younger, for sure. That's not to say I don't have it. I'm just able to control it better. I think that's maturity. What about you? Yeah, I'm just, I'm sitting here kind of trying to work out if I feel like that's how it is for me. I think like, I suppose it's definitely something that I'm aware of and become more aware of. The distinction I make is that maybe when I was kind of clapping back more younger, as opposed to it being a real ego, it was maybe more an insecurity. If someone was kind of challenging my knowledge or or authority in a situation, I would take that more as a, I would feel insecure about that and be like, defensive because I'm actually secretly insecure about do I have a right to have a place of authority in this session whereas now I probably have more of an ego in some ways because I think I've earned self-belief and I've earned trust in my resolve or trust in my opinion much more than I did when I was you know starting out I would say you have a more secure ego not bigger. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think maybe it affects me less, but I still think if someone kind of was to kind of challenge me on my kind of position of, you know, as a producer, you kind of have to be a position of authority because if you don't, the session's going nowhere. Before that would be masked with insecurity. I think now it is a genuine belief in myself, but then try not to come across like a dick, <laughs> you know, because I always try and say to people, just because I have an opinion doesn't mean I'm right, you know. So you just have to try and balance it. That's a good way to put it. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. 
So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. How do you balance the idea of being the authority figure, which is really important, actually. You're totally right that if there isn't a leader, everything goes to shit. I mean, that's what you're hired for. And even if it's a band that just wants you to re-record parts that they already totally wrote and just make them sound better versus a band that wants you to like help rewrite everything and be like, you know, the sixth member or whatever, no matter what you're hired to do, uh, no matter what the scope of the project is, you're being hired to be a leader and therefore they're giving you authority over the project and how you go about exercising that authority has a lot to do with how things are going to turn out, both in terms of your interpersonal relationship with these people and the end product. And so what I'm curious is how do you go about balancing being buddies with being the boss? Understanding that ultimately they're the boss because they're paying still within the confines of the session itself, you're kind of the boss. Yeah, I make sure that that is implied or known. You know, to be to be frank, I think it's really important. And again, just basing off, you know, the time spent in the studio and and learning that, you know, and having worked with bands that I feel intimidated by or, you know, feeling like, you know, secretly like, oh, am I good enough to have a position of authority in this session? This band is so good. Or I feel like, you know, that I'm not worthy of, you know, taking control. So then you don't take control and you become a passive person and you're kind of asking for forgiveness or, you know, asking to be told. And instantly in that role, you can feel the band lose trust in you and then they start kind of maybe not being happy with what you're doing. So definitely over time, I've learned that like, for me, it's better to kind of, yeah, just say to people, listen, like, you know, you guys will always have the final say on things, always. And if you tell me that you want to put a flanger over the whole mix, I'll tell you you're crazy, but I'll still do it. <laughs> if you're going to pay me to do it, I'll do it. But I always say to people, like, if I make a suggestion and like, it's kind of, shot down without even it being discussed or tried you're really wasting your money and your time working with me because the whole point that the fact that you're coming to me and not just doing it yourselves is the fact I've recorded a lot of songs and hopefully you're here because you've liked one of those <laughs> previous recordings to kind of dismiss any ideas without trying I think is a wasted opportunity however if you try it and tell me you think it's shit, I'm not going to be offended at that point. I'm going to just smile, say, cool, and then we move on, you know, and it's and it's not going to, it's going to be like water off a duck's back. But if you kind of dismissively say, you know, no to something without even kind of really hearing it through or like listening to the point, then I, the chances of me kind of saying, oh, hang on a minute, you know, you're here for a reason, that's more likely to happen. And I'm sure it goes both ways. Absolutely. Yeah, when they have an idea... I'm sure that you're going to at least try to hear them out. 100%. And, and also all the members as well, because I think that's another thing of like earning trust as well is I think it's easy and, you know, I've listened to plenty of um, producers talk on this or, you know, engineers talk on this subject of it's pretty clear that there's like always a hierarchy of like kind of dominance in a band. And I think the, some, the easiest thing to take as a producer that you're kind of being ingratiated into this kind of new group very quickly and establishing yourself 
within hours of meeting these people is to kind of side with the authority figure and work downwards. But what I've tried to do more is kind of actually kind of um, bring everyone else up to that level and kind of try and reinforce the idea that, you know, everyone should have an equal voice or if if not equal, have a voice, <laughs> have an opinion. Everyone's opinion's welcome. But the only kind of time that I think maybe that is limited is is time if time becomes a factor and people get too kind of involved and you know and everyone's got an opinion on every vocal harmony you're never going to finish things on time so at that point i'll say to people listen we're running low on time so if people want to make a suggestion i'm all ears i'm totally open for it but it has to be a hill you're willing to die on if, if it's something that is just a throwaway idea maybe don't you know just 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 you know if if you're making a suggestion and throwing it in just make sure it's something that you feel really strongly about if we're running low on time. But other than that, I kind of want to hear everyone's idea, really. Yeah. Well, this is not something that musicians are known to be good at, which is staying on task and only focusing on the most important ideas. Their job is to be creative, you know, so they're just going to throw things at you. You need to understand, as a producer, in my opinion, which are the important things to focus on given the actual physical parameters of the session, like that deadline for all intents and purposes of physical wall mm. that you're going to hit. I mean, yeah, you can extend it sometimes, but it's pretty much like a physical wall. It's a bookend. Whatever happens has to happen before that. And it needs to happen well enough before that, that you can do all the other things that matter as well before that wall, before you smack into it. Yeah, Creativity, I have noticed, like intense creativity and the ability to understand time constraints don't always go hand in hand. And so that is part of your role as an authority is to understand how to manage that upcoming, that upcoming end to the activities with having people feel like their voices are being listened to, but also making sure that all the important stuff is happening. So at the end of the day, what they're actually there for, which is a finished piece of work, happens. Mm. That matters way more than their individual ideas along the way. I think what you've just said literally is the critical mass of recording a band. For me personally, that like you've literally just uh, surmised for me exactly the, the job of a producer. Very, very like articulated well because cool well i'll i'll send you an invoice after this yeah, yeah. i just sound clip that and uh yeah just make a little sound clip of that and then if anyone ever asks me what i do for a living then <laughs> just play on that <laughs> and it's funny you know because how many conversations i mean obviously not you because you know you have conversations these conversations every day it's what you do but if you're talking to bands or bands talking to bands other artists i think that what you've just surmised there is like the critical mass of a producer is just it's just not seen it i don't think bands on bands really understand or are cognizant of that kind of part <laughs> of it they think it's about microphones or you know i don't know studios you know what i'm saying absolutely dude i can tell you this from the companies too that when i have to deal with which is all the time with producers and musicians both at Riff Hard and URM, yep. which is what we do. You know, this is an actual issue we have to deal with all the time because we have to get these projects done. There's no way around that. And 
I've seen the same thing from this angle as well as when I was producing from that angle. I think that when you're in the position of being the creative person, your project management skills just aren't going to be as strong. Someone has to be the project manager. Yeah, someone has to be able to think, we got to stay on track. Like, we can't be worried about this idea right now. And then also not do it in a way that alienates everybody. Yeah, and just sounds dismissive. Yeah, Exactly. Which is tough, man. It's actually really, really tough. Sometimes those ideas are crucial. That's the thing that's scary about it is um, you don't want to be tossing the really great ideas that are going to make the big difference. So you can't just approach it like you're a Terminator or something. Just uh, stay on target, stay on target. You know, like you can't, you cannot approach it like that. You actually do need to listen to these ideas because one of these ideas that might take you off track at first might solve a bunch of problems that are going to reveal themselves down the line Um, or might be the thing that makes it no longer a B plus, but an A plus like there's, there's ideas that are transformative. Yeah. And uh, so you need to be ready to jump on those too. It's tough. Yeah, definitely. In those situations, like one thing that I try and do is I think I'm, I'm pretty good at kind of maybe visualizing or like kind of hearing the song in my head uh, or like playing an idea through. So if it was, you know, someone was to suggest something, sometimes I might just not give a response straight away and just play the idea in my head and go, that could be really cool, actually. Yeah, let's give that a go. You know, so but, you know, even if I think that wouldn't work, I might be honest with a band and go, oh, I'm not actually sure on that, but hey, let's give it a go. Let's try it out and see what happens. And, you know, and and it's not uncommon for you to go, oh, do you know what? I wasn't sure on that, but hearing it now sounds amazing. Good shout, you know. But like you said, it's also you're balancing that against, okay, <laughs> we're running very low on time. So, you know, sometimes I'll kind of just mention that, say I'm, I'm conscious that we're running low on time, but I'm up for giving it a go. Or saying, you know, just kind of addressing the fact that, you know, people are aware that like, you know, every time a suggestion is made that there might be ramifications on deadlines or schedules. Yeah, I mean... What's funny is you say that, that they might be aware, but I think that sometimes you have to run with it, even understanding that no matter how many times you say that, they're not going to understand the deadline the way you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I think certain artists and certain bands more than others as well. I think it's a sliding scale, isn't it? I think, you know. it's a, it's Yeah, it's a sliding scale, but I think that there's, I'm convinced um, that this is wired into people's brains. Um, the reason I say this and you know, I'm taking leaps is because I know that uh, the part of your brain that is able to calculate long-term consequences is something that happens when you're about 25, like that final part of your brain finally, you know, finally grows in, I guess. Um, yeah. The younger you are, the less you're able to actually understand the true meaning of a long-term impact or a long-term consequence, which is why teenagers or people in their early 20s are, you know, they when they think of, oh, that's not going to happen for 40 years. It's like it's not even going to happen. You know, yeah. I'll just yeah. do whatever I want now. They can't connect those two. They're physically unable. That part of their brain's not there yet. They can intellectually understand it, but whatever is beyond intellect that actually makes you lock into an idea that's not there. And I have a feeling that for some people, it's never totally there. And so as much as you say it, some people are just never going to actually feel the reality of those parameters. 
And I think that you need to understand that about them. You need to understand that I'm saying this, lights are on, but nobody's home. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to proceed with this understanding regardless if they understand it or not, because that's what they're paying me to do. Yeah, definitely something I, I hadn't maybe considered that kind of um, how abstract the idea of kind of deadlines are to maybe artists. Um, but yeah, you're, I think you're right. Thinking it through and listening to what you're saying and then kind of thinking back to times where I've had to kind of endlessly repeat something about deadlines is, yeah, I think there's definite weight to it. Yeah, so think about how many times you've said things to somebody where it's almost as if you didn't even say it. Um, it could be it could be certain things like we're going, this is the plan. We're going to do this and this and this, and you're going to do these three things. Um, and I need them by this date or whatever, or we got to get this done. <laughs> the deadline is in 48 hours or two weeks or whatever it is. And you've discussed this multiple times and they've nodded and agreed. Yeah. And then five minutes later as if, you never even had that conversation. Yeah. How many times has that happened? You because it's hundreds for me. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, so if not much. thousands. And and there's and there's a few points I think that they happen time and time again in specific areas. So people providing stems. You know, if you're if you're just on a mixed project and you know at some point you're you're speaking with you know the artist or you know because again over COVID and I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people listening and a lot of your other guests have been in a similar situation where a lot of it has been remote mixing where an artist is maybe working from home all themselves where they might have worked with other producers before they're kind of working much more on their own now. And, you know, they book in with you, say, hey, man, we want you to mix this song or whatever. And I was like, that's cool. And part of my booking process is... um this is the deadline that I need the stems by. It's an agreed thing before they put a deposit down on a day. I'm like, this is, I need you to understand that this is the day I need the stems. And I would say more than eight times out of 10, I guess, there's always a bit of a delay. They're always like, ah, oh, I'm running a bit behind. <laughs> or I'll say to them, oh, I've not got the stems. And they'll go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you needed them by this day, didn't you? You know, so yeah, that's a very common one. So yeah, you're right. I think uh, it's, uh, yeah, maybe the, you can say it. You can say it till the cows come home, but it's um, the artistic side come kind of takes over, I guess. Yeah, it, exactly. But you need to proceed anyways, as if uh, you need. You can't let that take you off track. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and again, it's. I think sometimes it's just that they're the times that maybe um, that do call for more of a blunt conversation. I've found, you know, or at least that's how I tend to deal with it in in those situations where it's kind of. Uh, you know, there was some kind of agreement on timing of something and then for whatever reason it's not happened, that's be the time I might then turn around and say, oh, this is what we agreed and you can see that we agreed it here in that, uh, you know, confirmation email that I send. So just to let you know, that's what we agreed on and then that needs to happen, you know. Man, I've noticed that even then, <laughs> some people <laughs> just don't get it. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Switching topics, uh, sure. something I wanted to talk to you about that comes up a lot, actually, in the URM group. People ask this question a lot. A unique thing about you is that you were most focused on making a career doing what you loved in music rather than trying to spread yourself over multiple disciplines. So you specialized early. And what do you think people miss about not throwing their whole selves into an art form, you know, or what would they gain by 
throwing themselves into an art form versus not specializing and just being a general recording engineer, for instance? I mean, I think like the wider thing of throwing yourself into it is I will just say that I think that is probably the most important thing that I've found for me that uh, in any of this, and I'm kind of conscious that I, I don't want to kind of come across uh, like I've got all the answers because, you know, you've spoken to many people and I've listened to many of your podcasts with people far more successful and knowledgeable on this than I. But um, having my small window of, of experience, um, the idea of not having a plan B <laughs> has been a big thing for me. Um, not you know, this idea that kind of to a safety net, I think it, it, it's, um, I don't think it helps a lot of the time, you know. I think actually just committing to something is is huge and saying to yourself, I'm not going to die if I fail, but if I keep something back as a kind of, oh, well, I'll just study this just in case or I'll just get a job, you know, that kind of mentality, I think, you know, it's getting out of your comfort zone and pushing yourself um is such a big part of, of getting that kind of initial jump on on into this kind of as a career. But then beyond that, into kind of specialisation, I think like, again, speaking just from my, my experience and my opinion on this is that I can only, I can only do this job. This job takes so much time out of my life it is what I do. So the idea of not being passionate about it seems completely foreign to me. So I can only work on projects that I really actually give a shit about and if I know that I don't give a shit going in, I'll have to get out, out of that project as quickly as possible, you know, or, or turn it down because I just don't think it's possible to prolong periods of time, do this without loving it, you know. It's an interesting topic because in some ways specialization is going to make your life tougher hmm. in some ways, but in other ways it's the way and the light. So for instance, if someone knows that, they want to be the best extreme metal producer in the world. They have no interest in other stuff. Like, they want to do the most brutal death metal and black metal bands, and that is what they want to be known for. Maybe learning how to mix country can somehow help. Yeah. But it really is the best idea, in my opinion, to, yeah, while you're trying to get as badass as possible in general, you need to throw yourself into that. You really need to throw yourself into that and live, breathe, eat, shit, bleed those genres. A hundred percent, yeah. Yeah. If that's not what you want, though, if you just want to be a recording engineer or a producer, it doesn't matter what genre or there's like a certain direction. Like you want to do heavy music, but like you don't care what kind of heavy music. Like that's just, you know, you're oriented towards heavy music. So doesn't matter if it's pop punk or death metal or radio rock or what like it could even be country with distorted guitars like as long as it's like kind of heavy to your bag that's cool too i think the key is to understand what it is that turns you on about music and that's not to say that you shouldn't learn other things of course you should but there is only so much time on earth to do things um and the thing that gets you the most energized is the thing that you're going to spend the most time on. Yeah. And uh, those, those are the things that we should try to be aware of and go towards. Because if we're not going towards the things that energize us, we're going to be competing against people who are. Yeah. And uh, good luck to anyone who, 
who's trying to compete with people who are willing to work 18 hours a day and love it. Yeah, exactly. If you're, if they're not. Yeah. I mean, I think locking yourself in on a genre, I mean, mean, it's definitely never something that I even really thought about. So it seems slightly foreign, the concept to me that being like, you know, this is what I want to do, but I totally respect people there. I I, I realise there are people out there who are solely do one genre and they they do very well at it. I've actually always kind of tried to do the opposite, I suppose, to some degree. I mean, I've never recorded opera, so I mean, I haven't been that varied, but you know, I've definitely um, try and kind of switch things up. And now I, if and where possible, I'll try and kind of not do two genres of the same thing back to back. But even so, yeah, I think the the reason I do that is because I'm passionate about making music or you know making music that kind of comes from maybe a an emotional place so that for me is my passion is that um i want to work with music or work on projects that feel they have a kind of emotional resonance to it so that could be a ballad Mm -hmm. that feels heartbreaking i will get the same joy or passion for my job doing that as doing something that's just so disgustingly heavy that you know it makes you want to punch something but it's it's genuine. It's you know you know how some bands sound real when they're screaming and heavy, and some bands don't. Yep. Um, and I think that comes down to that 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 the reality of the intention, and you know, especially in the vocal, you know. So that for me is my passion. So I, I, that's what I'm always hunting for. Ultimately, I think is kind of to work with bands that have the music means something to them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think. I think if I, you know, I turn down projects like, you know, or genres that I feel like I'm like not skilled in because for exactly the reason you say, because if someone came to me and said, we want to make, do a kind of hip hop song or something, I'll have a stab at it. But there's people out there that are going to be way more talented than, than I because they, they've put, you know, 15 years into learning that genre and, and perfecting that craft than I've been doing with drums and guitars, you know. So um, I think it's also, yeah, knowing knowing when to be honest with people, I think, and say no. Yeah, it's interesting because there's always something to be learned from stepping outside your comfort zone. But when you're doing this for a living, you have to recognize that you are taking people's money. Yeah. And you need to be upfront with them about whether or not you're, you feel you're the person for it. They might see something in you that you don't understand and they might insist. I do think it's important to be honest. You know, if you don't feel you're the right person for it, just say it. Yeah. And I think as well, like recently, I suppose in the last few years, um, I think I've learned the ability to um, to say no more. And on projects where either like for money, you know, for financial reasons or for... I think sometimes, you know, some people kind of approach me because they want me to do it for geographical reasons or logistical reasons you know they're based in the same area as me therefore that's who you want to work with and it's it's strange because you know in that situation very often I'm definitely not the right person for that job because you know like I predominantly work in certain genres and certain fields and kind of feel like my kind of knowledge is is kind of predicated on certain things and if a band come to me and they just want to bang out some songs quickly and economically and they're approaching me just because geographically I'm closest to them or, you know, whatever, or they like the look of a piece of equipment I've got. I'm quite comfortable now of just saying, oh, I don't think I'm the right fit for you, but here are some other people that may be a better fit, you know. 
but it's um, it's taken some time to be able to understand that because the reason I do that is is firstly for them because they're not spending money that they don't have to spend, but it's also for me because, like you said, it's this this job takes up it's a lot of hours, and I just really appreciate the the idea that I don't want to get to a certain point in in doing this job and lose the love for it because I'm working on things that are killing me or crushing me, you know. So I only want to do <laughs> stuff that I care about, you know. Yeah, you know. The thing is, though, I need to just make this statement for Nail the Mix students. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, I just had to get this off my chest. There's some Nail the Mix students who will only work on the months that they like the artist. And I think that's dumb. You should work on every single one of them exactly because you are a student. Yeah. And while you're a student, you should be trying to get as good as possible and learn as many different things as possible. What we're talking about here is specifically in a professional situation where people are paying you their money in exchange for your time and skills. That's different. That's very, very different. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying this in a position that I'm in now, um, which is that, you know, I've I've had my own brick and mortar studio for 14 years and worked in another studio before that. But, you know, the first studio I worked in, I literally, I always make this joke, but I probably recorded someone singing a cover of the song My Way about 15 times in six months. And it was hilarious to me that they were all singing My Way. But, you know, I didn't want to do that song. There was so much stuff I was doing all sorts of things that it wouldn't have been my taste, but I was just enjoying learning. And I've done certainly done plenty of projects that, you know, wouldn't have been my first choice, but like I got so much from it. But, you know, I'm saying now that, you know, I choose to kind of focus on the thing purely because I've already put in a decade and a half into this already that I've maybe earned or found myself in a luxury position that I have some some degree of kind of choice in that but it's definitely not a given and yeah I mean you know you know the, there was nothing like now the mix you know when I was starting I'm you know so jealous of you know people that are starting now with the un- <laughs> unbelie- unbelievable resources you know and there was a song the production has driven me crazy for maybe a decade or however long I remember hearing this song and listening to the drums and, and it drove me crazy because I was like, I know what samples sound like on drums and I know what live drums sound like and it doesn't sound like either. It's got such a unique sound. And you did the unboxing video on that uh, and it was um, Redneck by Lamb of God. Oh, yeah. And it was like joyous for me watching that video that you did because it was like, oh, you know, I get to see behind the curtain of like, oh, and this is how they track that. And this is how Chris Adler tracked his hands separately and the shells separately. And that's why it sounds the way it does, because it's not a sample. It is a live snare drum, but it's just got no bleed. And that resource to me, like coming up, you know, in a time where there was, you know, no internet or if there was internet, it was, you know, emails. Um, and to have this now, it's like, it's unbelievable. So uh, it's just unbelievable resource. And I think, you know, the resources you're giving kind of new engineers is is honestly incredible. It really is. And even people like, you know, that have done it for a few years, like me, I'm still blown away with some of the content you put out like that. So it's very cool. Well, thank you. I was blown away when I did that unboxing. I remember that one specifically because how those drums were created has actually been a, a mystery in the metal community forever. Like the, the Lamb of God drums on those records was always a topic of conversation and intrigue, I think, yeah. for everybody in, uh, in heavy music. And so to get to go through that was, I think, just as cool for me as it was for you to watch it. It was 
revelatory. And it made perfect sense too. I think that that's part of what's cool about it also is one thing I've heard is lots of people will watch it and say, oh, okay, that's what I thought. It's good to get some confirmation that my instincts are correct on something or this is what I was already doing. So I just have to do it better. And I think that that's really, really valuable. Whereas I think when you and I were starting, there was nothing like that. So we didn't know if we were doing something correctly, doing something incorrectly, if it was something we just needed to get better at it, or (laughs) if it was just a really stupid approach to something. I think people don't need to wonder about that anymore, which is crazy. I can't imagine growing up with that. I mean, unbelievable. I remember um, because... uh, I reckon I was probably in a good four years, maybe not kind of doing it full-time professionally, but four years into recording bands who were paying me something to do it before I even knew what drum samples were. Genuinely, didn't know. Didn't realise they were a thing. And I was in a band and I used to kind of, I suppose, you know, how I kind of did a lot of my early recording before I was charging bands, I would record just my own band, like I'm sure lots of people do. And I didn't know drum samples were a thing because, like you said, these resources just weren't there. And certainly in that period, drum samples were always like a bit of a kind of behind the curtain thing that no one really liked to talk about anyway. So the drummer in my band, I just punished him on his kick drum. I'd be like, no, you're, you're hitting it too soft. Listen to this record. It doesn't sound the same as when you play it. And and he ended up having one of the most unreal feet because we didn't realize that with the records we grew up listening to and loving like the which were the fat you know the fat records skate punk stuff where it's like a kick sample doing those really super fast double kicks he just learned to play that for real you know just by absolutely hammering his foot because we didn't realize that there was another option so it was a constant i think probably in the era that we came up doing it you you learn to do something and then you figure out that's not how it's done and then you relearn and whereas i think people that are coming up now are just bypassing so much of that trial and error because it's like, oh, this is this is kind of actually what you're supposed to do. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. That makes much more sense than my crazy idea that I've kind of tried to do to make it work, you know? Yeah. It's interesting though, because uh, sometimes though, when you imagine what someone might be doing and uh, you're wrong, uh, you might come up with something kind of breakthrough. Yeah trying to figure it out, which is kind of what you were describing. I also think that lots of the amazing drummers that exist now, the ones that are, I guess, above a certain age who came up in the mid-2000s or were learning in the mid-2000s, they didn't know that things were edited or, you know, double kicks were drawn in. They just figured people played like that. And so they rose to the challenge Mm. and played some inhuman things, therefore raised the bar on what was possible. Yeah, and I think the same with, there's a few singers I work with. Actually, I'll give a shout out to one of them. There's a band called You Win Again Gravity, who, um, this band from the UK that are just absolutely ridiculous. But the singer, sometimes I've like done a, I've, I've done a mix with them and he sent a note back saying like, oh, just, just can hear the tuning a little bit on this one note. And I'm like, there's, there's no tuning. He can sing like it's tuned. You know, it literally, he can sing a note. So the way it climbs from one note to another or kind of, you know, moves from one note to another, his vocally is so accurate. And I put that down to probably him growing up in a time where vocalists, you know, were being tuned a bit harder and he's literally learned to sing like that, you know, like, so it's, it's unbelievable accuracy with no vibrato. It's crazy. It's funny you bring that up because there, have you 
Man, there have been vocals that we've had on Nail the Mix where the producer swore the shit wasn't tuned and it sounds tuned and people thought it was tuned. But I know that the producer was telling the truth because I've recorded vocalists that sound like they have tuning on mm. because they're just, they emulated that sound. They grew up hearing that and they sound tuned. They sound yeah. like they have auto-tune, like that specific auto-tune sound. Their voice sounds like it has it. It's a crazy thing, but it's real. It's definitely real. Yeah, this is it, 100%. And this is what I have with that. Uh, I had more than on one occasion with this one singer. I mean, he is he is unbelievably talented. His vocal arrangements and stuff, the musically, it sounds a bit like a cross between Deftones and Periphery and then the kind of like math rock scene of like, you know, kind of like the BSM bands that I kind of came up working on. So it's just a real interesting mix, but he sings these like incredible vocal arrangements. He writes these kind of like four-part harmonies and... Um, but his voice is so accurate that like even he sometimes thinks that I've tuned it. And I'm like, I, I haven't. <laughs> I mean, obviously, sometimes I have tuned it. But, you know, there's been m numerous times where he's literally, uh, as a mix note, said, oh, can you just dial back the tuning on that note? And I'm like, there, there is none on that note. That's just how you performed it in the on the day. So... It is definitely possible. And I think the same with, with drum samples and, and like you said, drum editing and stuff. There's, um, you know, obviously I'm sure we're all familiar of certain drummers out there who, who are always at the middle of controversies over is something edited or not? Is it, is it triggered or not? You know, all of this kind of stuff. It's fascinating to see that like drummers have now learnt to literally sound like drum samples edited, you know, grid edited and with samples, and it's, that's just what they sound like. They've learned to emulate that with their hands. It's, it's incredible. I mean, that is like the human, why human beings are amazing though, isn't it? That we can learn and evolve to do things like this so quickly. Unbelievable. Because it's 20 years really, isn't it? 30 years tops that these things have been around. Yeah, but you know, it makes sense. We're able to emulate and uh, innovate. That's what's cool about us. It is kind of unbelievable though when... You hear something that in years prior would have definitely been samples or tuning, but now people have just gotten that good. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I, and I often, you know, wonder with certain people, is it because it was the same as, you know, it was with me? I mean, obviously, I, I don't really play drums. It was more me just punishing a drummer <laughs> as opposed to me learning the skill. But, you know, we literally didn't know that drum samples existed so when we listened to like i said the fat record stuff like you know lagwagon no effects strung out bands like that and they've they're doing these super fast you know the the skate punk speed you know stuff where it's got this double you know single double single double kick pattern and it's clearly a drum sample yeah you can hear it now but at the time i didn't know that was a thing so when he did it i could hear the weakness of the second hit on the double whether it was done with a single pedal and I'd say to him, oh, it doesn't sound right. You need to learn how to do that better. <laughs> so I just would punish him and he learned to do it, it just because we didn't know. And, uh, and I think that's probably just that similar thing with like drum, you know, drummers now and vocalists now. They maybe don't know that what auto-tune or, you know, pitch correction is. Therefore, they just think that's how you sing and they, they, they modulate their vocal to do that. It's, it, it is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So going to have to wrap this up now, but... Uh... Before we take off, I just have one question left for you. Okay. You're talking about the UK production trend right now of having a really smooth and dark top end compared to the brightness of a lot of American productions. And I'm just curious yeah. what 
you attribute this regional preference for or to? Partially historic. I think like uh, there's kind of stories of, of when vinyl was being cut in like the, the 70s and stuff that people like in the U- in the London studios would get the American records and kind of couldn't work out why the American records were perceived louder uh, than the British stuff. But And that's generally because the like American stuff has like traditionally a bit more of a tighter bottom end and just a bit more extended top end. But I've, you know, obviously when you have a more pronounced upper mids and that's where the perceived volume comes from. And obviously, you know, the less low end you have on something, there's more headroom, you can actually push things louder. So I think there's that kind of historical thing as well. So I think it's always been there to some degree. I think to me, there's always been a distinction between an American sounding record and a British sounding one. I mean, obviously, you know, you do get kind of outliers and like, you know, people in the UK who like make more American sounding records and people in the States who make more British sounding records. But uh, as I think as a gross generalization, that's a thing. But then I think also it then becomes trends inside of that. And I think um, digital has got a lot better. And I think a lot of that kind of harshness that maybe, to be honest, I probably grew up listening to because that was what the music, what was, you know, I was probably listening to music that was kind of transitioning from tape to digital. And at that time, people were like overcooking the top end because that's how you had to capture stuff to tape. You had to push the top end in a little bit on the way in to kind of make sure it comes back sounding bright and not dead. Um, And people were doing that to digital and then just ending up with these super brittle sounding records and combine that with kind of quite low quality digital and, um, you know, not particularly good conversion stuff. So I think music generally in like the 90s and early noughties probably was a little bit on the harsh side. So I think that's another factor. And I also think like the kind of the ending of the loudness war is probably another factor as well as to why the kind of more smoother, you know, fatter or rounder and warmer sounding records are probably becoming more uh, popular again, because again, it's like everyone's race to make everything the loudest is is kind of, it, it's not there as much or it's kind of unnecessary or it's you know it's obsolete because you can make the loudest master in the world it's only just going to get turned down when you listen to it on spotify now so i think people are focused more on making pleasant sounding records as opposed to loud aggressive ones yeah i think that's a great explanation thank you well oz craggs i want to thank you for coming on the urm podcast it's been a pleasure talking to you i'm really glad we got to do this Thanks very much. Yeah, so as I said, it's a real, real honour to be here. And, um, you know, I think the resources you guys are, are, are giving people is, is phenomenal. So, uh, you know, thanks, thanks to you guys for just providing such an amazing resource for everybody and uh, including myself, you know. As I said, thanks for having me. A real honour to, uh, to be asked. It was a pleasure, sir. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALLEVYURM Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, ale. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.